you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. What a great prayer. Oh, that America would pray a prayer like that one to bring restoration and healing to our land. But Nehemiah, he's a Jew who is a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, the king of Babylon. And just that in itself is an almost impossible thought for us to even ponder. How could it possibly be that a Jew would serve in that role for a pagan Babylonian king? Well, it was an impossible situation. But we serve the God of the impossible. Do you believe that this morning? In fact, the word says that he delights in doing what we think to be impossible. Now, how many of you have ever felt like you had what at least seemed to be an impossible situation? Several of us. That's encouraging because you're the miracles, those are the miracles that I'm praying for. That God will take whatever impossible situations might be present in the lives of our people and do something so amazing that everyone else will know it had to be God. Amen? So, let's get started. An impossible situation. We serve the God of the impossible. The Jews are being held in Babylonian captivity, and their hope of getting out of that captivity seems practically impossible. The destruction of the city of Jerusalem is also a situation that seemed far beyond their comprehension. And rebuilding that city and its walls surrounding it seemed even less likely. But here's the message that Nehemiah heard, and one that I believe we need to hear again today. God does his best work in seemingly impossible situations. Nehemiah was just an ordinary guy. How many ordinary people do we have here today? Well, we all are. He was a regular guy with a regular testimony for the Lord. And it was just an ordinary day, as we said last Sunday, when he heard about the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. He heard about the need to do the same with with the walls which surrounded that city. They now stood in heaps. The gates of the city had been burned with fire. The people there were... Got a fly up here. The people there were discouraged. They were devastated in poverty. And all of that news literally broke this man named Nehemiah's heart. So much so that his response was what we read in verses 5 through 11. His response was he began to weep. He began to pray. He began to fast over the situation. And verse 4 that we shared last week uh, tells us that as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So picture this. One of the major themes that, in, that emerges from this, this autobiography that Nehemiah has written 
is this theme of prayer. The book opens with prayer. The book closes with prayer. In fact, there are 12 prayers that we will find in this book of Nehemiah. And we would say, why so many prayers in such a short autobiography? I'll tell you why. Because Nehemiah realized there are, and I want you to hear this, there are many things that you can do after prayer, but there is nothing you can do until you pray. Can you remember that? There's much that you can do after prayer, but there is nothing you can do until you pray. That's a theme of this entire series. In fact, George MacDonald, the great Scottish pastor of the 1800s, he once said it this way, In whatever man does without God, he must fail miserably or succeed more miserably. We are entirely dependent upon God. I pray that you're finding that out in a good way. We are dependent people. We have been created that way so that when we find ourselves in seemingly impossible situations, we would not resort to our own strength and ingenuity, but we would turn to God. He wants it that way. He wants us to come to him, and, and not only does he want us to come to him, but he's wanting to say to us, you're not going to believe what I can do with your impossible situation. And then he shows us. Because he's got the power to do that. Any seemingly successful person who succeeds independently of God is miserable. Now, I, I've, I've discovered, I was going to say I've experienced, but more accurately, I've discovered that man is incomplete until he realizes that his completeness comes through God. It's like, how many of you like to put together puzzles Brenda puts together puzzles every once in a while. And it seems like almost without exception in the putting together of her puzzles, one piece comes up missing. And you get right down to the end of the puzzle and you have this picture and there's one piece that my boxer has eaten or taken somewhere in the house. I kind of liken that to our lives. God has made each of us like a puzzle. And there's one piece missing, and we try to jam everything in that to make the picture complete, make our lives complete. But what we'll ultimately determine is that nothing can fill that puzzle piece except God and make the picture of our lives whole again. So what's happening here? is that we have to realize that all we have, all we are, is dependent upon God. And we will walk through life with the most joy, not when we heap things around us as our gods, but when we turn to the one true God. Alan Redpath, the British evangelist, said there's too much working and there's too little waiting before God. I love that. Too much working, too little waiting. And what I'm trying to illustrate to you through that, uh, that statement is this. If we took 1% of the energy we put into trying to make things happen and invested that same time into prayer, we would see an exponential increase in the blessing of God in our lives. I'm talking to you about the most powerful force the world has ever known. The power 
of prayer. Nehemiah was faced with a seemingly impossible situation. We're going to talk about all of the aspects of the impossibility of that situation here in a moment. But this book, this story is about building a work for God. And let me just say that behind every great work of God, there is somewhere someone kneeling in prayer about that work. All of heaven's power becomes available and focused on the work of God when the people of God become willing to weep and pray and fast for those things that are truly important in life. Nehemiah hears about this impossible situation, a situation that he didn't create, a situation that his ancestors caused by turning away from God. They were banished and dispersed into Babylonian captivity. But he hears about the plight back in his home, city of Jerusalem. The city's been plundered. The walls have been torn down. The gates of the city have been burned. And he hears about it. And, you know, we sang that song earlier, Jacob led us in. We find, ourselves, we find Nehemiah, he's down, but he's not out. He, he's, he's not destroyed. He, he, you, and what I'm saying, friends, is we don't have to idly sit by and just accept whatever life throws at us. We don't have to. God's got a better plan. And Nehemiah has an outlook of faith. We as the people of God, we're not helpless in the face of problems. A follower of Jesus shouldn't have the negative mindset that there's a a difficulty surrounding every opportunity. A person who follows and who has learned to trust in Jesus sees rather an opportunity in every difficulty. Think about this. Every miracle, every miracle that God has ever performed started out with a problem. Have you ever thought about that? Every miracle that God's ever performed started out with a problem. Jesus didn't do miracles to to make good things better. He did miracles to make bad things good. And he righted wrongs. He, He fixed broken things. Problems are opportunities, friends, for God to show himself powerful. Now, I don't need to ask this question, but I'm going to. How many of you have ever had a problem? Okay, how many of you have ever had a problem that it seemingly couldn't be solved? Here's where God comes into the mix. Nehemiah's reaction to his brokenness over what had happened in his hometown of Jerusalem was weeping and dejection, just as many of us would react if something were to happen tragically in our, our lives or in our area. But fasting and prayer was Nehemiah's counteraction. Did you grasp that? His reaction was brokenness and weeping, but his counteraction was fasting and prayer. And as people of God, as I said before, we have this powerful tool at our disposal, and it's a mighty weapon. It's called prayer. One of the most commonly used scriptures that I quote to people is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 4. It says, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, in other words, fleshly weapons, but are powerful through God to the pulling down of strongholds. 
to the pulling down and eliminating of impossible situations that come into our lives. Prayer moves the hand that moves the world. With just a stroke of Jesus' hand, demons would flee. With, with just a stroke of Jesus' hand, mountains could be moved. With just a stroke of Jesus' hand, terminal diseases were healed. We see examples of it throughout the Gospels in the New Testament. And here in Nehemiah chapter number 1, we find Nehemiah praying what I believe to be one of the mightiest prayers in all the Word of God. It's what we call a prayer of contrition. Now I'll explain that. Beginning there in verse number 5, the first thing that I see is Nehemiah understands who he's praying to. He understands that he's praying before the God of heaven. He isn't just coming to God in some flippant fashion, like, oh, by the way, God, here's this situation. No, he understands he's praying before the God of creation. And let me just say, prayer is conversation with God, but that conversation always has to have accompanying it reverence for the one that we're praying to. You know, Jesus himself, when he was here on earth, he, he prayed and gave us an example of what we call today. Actually, it's not the Lord's Prayer. It should be called the Disciples' Prayer. But we common, commonly call it the Lord's Prayer. And how did Jesus pray it? He said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Why should we approach God in that way? We need to understand something. His ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are higher than ours. He has a position that is much higher than ours. We live in this culture today where we only want to hear about things like the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the goodness of God. And as real as those things are, and I, how thankful we are for them. Let me just say this. If you reject coming to God with an awareness of who he is in relation to who you are, that next verse of 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 that I quoted a moment ago says this, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Or what Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We approach God with reverence. It almost seems like we're living in a no-fear generation. America has lost her fear for the God who gave us this land and the freedoms that we enjoy. And the church, the church, the corporate body of Christ, I wonder if the church is sometimes becoming forgetful too. We used to fear God. It showed in our behavior, in our lifestyle. And I'm not talking about an unhealthy fear of a dictator. I'm talking about we used to be afraid, friends, of letting God down. Are we losing that? I got to tell you, I'm against preaching. I'm against any kind of worship music. I'm against any program in the church that tries to pull God down to our level. Let me just say this this way. The church today is saying to the world, well, since you aren't willing to go to the one who said, come unto me, we'll make a more tolerable version of God that comes down where you like to live. 
We need to learn from Nehemiah how to move the hand of God, how to get our prayers answered. And we do that by approaching him with reverence and holy fear. You see, when you have real problems, and I don't mean to sound crass in saying it this way, but when you have real problems that feel like impossible situations, you don't need a God that you can walk up to and high-five. You understand what I'm saying? You need a God that is so great, so mighty, so powerful, that coming into his presence causes you to kneel on your knees in humble contrition, as Nehemiah is doing here. Nehemiah's prayer was also a prayer of concern. He wasn't praying simply because it was time to pray. He wasn't sitting down to eat or taking up the offering or praying any kind of prayer out of habit or tradition. And yes, there is a place for a structured schedule of prayer and principled prayer and Bible study, all of those spiritual disciplines. But in the midst of this man's pain over what had taken place in the city of Jerusalem, he was praying a real prayer of concern. I once heard it preached. I'm sure you've heard it too. There are two times to pray. When you feel like it and when you don't. That pretty much covers it, doesn't it? I've learned that we especially need to pray when we feel like it the least. There are also two times that we need to get into the Word of God and pray the way that it instructs us to pray. Joshua said in Joshua chapter 1, verse number 8, these words, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that was written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and you will have good success. Let me just ask a question for you to consider. When was the last time that you prayed, not because you were called upon or out of habit, but because your heart was broken and you were hurting? Think about that. Another question, when was the last time that you were burdened about someone else's soul to the degree that you wept and prayed for them without ceasing? Yet another one. When is the last time you bore the burden of a fellow believer and took the, the, the needs of that fellow believer on, on your heart to the degree that you helped them to carry that burden and you carried it to God in prayer? You don't carry it to your neighbor. You take it to the Lord in prayer, believing that you could pray their answer down. Now, I know that's not good grammar, but you understand what I'm saying. Praying until you get the answer that that person, that loved one, needs in their life. You know, we just had the situation you're all aware of. Tricia and Justin, our entire family, we're so grateful. We're so, we were so blessed and still are by those of you who travailed in prayer for Justin. He was a sick guy. He was in the hospital for 16 days. And you folks prayed for him as if he were your own flesh and blood. Can I just say to you, that's how we all should pray for one another. We are fellow members of the family of God. When one of us is hurting, it should affect us all. By the same token, when we are joyful, we should all share in the joy. That's what families do. But here in this message, I'm talking about a heart-wrenching concern. 
I fear that the church has become dry-eyed in a hell-bent world. A poet said it this way, Our eyes are dry, our faith is old, our heart is, our heart is hard, and our prayers are cold. Nehemiah could have never rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem until he first wept over the ruins of Jerusalem. The burden led to prayer, and prayer led to the miracle. What I'm saying to you is you can't heal what you don't feel. You have to, you have to feel the pain of it. That pain has to drive you to prayer. And when you pray to God in faith believing, you are praying to an all-powerful God who can take an impossible situation and make it happen. He can do that. You've heard it said that tears are a language that God understands. What that simply means is this. God is moved by what moves us. He's moved by what moves us. And I'm not talking about the crocodile tears that we can work up and squeeze out of our eye sockets. I'm talking about a heartfelt burden that leads us to weep in prayer. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 126, 5 and 6, that those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves, that is, bundles of grain, with him. So not only was Nehemiah's a prayer of contrition, a prayer of concern, Nehemiah's was also, and probably most importantly for Nehemiah and for his people, a prayer of confession. We read in verses 6 and 7, of Nehemiah's heartbreak over what had resulted in the dispersion and captivity of his fellow Jewish people. The best prayers are the ones that God hears, and he's promised that he doesn't hear the prayers of those who willfully aren't right with him. Therefore, the need for a prayer of confession. Again, the psalmist said in Psalm 66, verse number 18, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. A prayer of confession is saying, God, we're sorry. We're sorry for what we've done that has resulted in this nearly impossible situation. We've turned away from you. We've turned to other gods. And it's resulted in our being taken away from our homeland and carried into Babylonian captivity. God, forgive us. Forgive us for what caused this. And again, Nehemiah wasn't even a part of the reason why. He wasn't even around yet. But you see, prayer uh, situations of this magnitude that were created by an entire people of turning away from God, the, pr- the sin was a cooperative sin. Therefore, the confession has to be a cooperative confession. In other words, it wouldn't make sense for me to say, God, forgive me and restore America. It's a prayer that requires God forgive us. Restore our land for what has happened. It's it's a cooperative thing. 
Nehemiah knew that it was sin that had led to the destruction of Jerusalem and her walls. And it would do no good to weep over those ruins if he wasn't willing to repent of the sin which led to those ruins happening. Is your life lying in ruins? I can guarantee you that if it is, sin is the blame. It always is. If you find your life in ruin, sin's the cause. Don't just cry over your plight. Make it right. And I know that that's true for me, and I'm sure many of you would, come, would tell me that you've come to know this same truth in your life. Many times, God will give you back more for your repentance than you ever lost in your sin. Did you hear that? God will give you back more in your repentance than you ever lost in your sin. That's just the goodness of God. We're prone to complain, oh, you know what, I've blown it. I've lost so much and I can never regain it. (laughs) We serve a great God. And as long as you are living and breathing, God's not finished with you. You know how I know that? Because I'm trusting that everybody here is still breathing. I sure pray that's the case. You know, there's a difference between being sorry for your sin and just being sorry that you got caught in your sin. Some people only weep over their sin once they're experiencing the painful consequences that sin results in. But there's a difference between weeping because you don't like your consequences and weeping because you let the God of heaven down. The God of heaven who loved you enough to send his son to die in your place and you callously sin against that one who loved you that much, it ought to break your heart. Not the fact that you got caught, but the fact that you let him down after he's given so much. Nehemiah wept over the consequences, but primarily he wept over the sin which led to those consequences. Look again at those, the latter part of verse 6 and, and the, the beginning of verse 7. Listen to how it reads. We have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded. Your servant knows us. Now, why is Nehemiah, what is Nehemiah doing saying words like that? As I said, he wasn't even alive for those sins. He was born and raised a thousand miles away from where all of this took place. Well, it's what we call the identification principle. Nehemiah is identifying with the sins of the Jewish people. God's prophet for that time was a man, a scribe, whose name was Ezra. As a matter of fact, the book of Ezra immediately precedes this book of Nehemiah. And Ezra tells us in Ezra chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed, and I blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Does that sound like a prayer that needs to be prayed today? It sure does. It's a prayer of 
of not only a prayer of contrition and a prayer of concern. As I said earlier, it, 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 is, a, it is a prayer of, what did I call it? I don't even remember. A prayer of confession. God, we've done this. This is the result. And Nehemiah, uh, well, let me first say this. And please hear my heart on this, not just my words. What I believe is that the things that used to make us blush in America, it seems that we're now proud of them and we flaunt them openly. Notice what Ezra says in that next verse in chapter number 9 of his book. He says in verse 7, from the days of our fathers to this day, we've been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hands of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. You see, friends, Nehemiah recognized the true fact that when a nation turns against God, there is a sense in which we all bear that responsibility. We're all Americans. We're in this together. And even if it's not you or me personally doing the sinning, it is our apathy and our indifference which has allowed it to take place continually and even more so as the days go by right under our noses. We have to bear that responsibility. We blame our leaders for many things. But let me ask you the question. Who was it that elected them? You say, well, my vote doesn't matter. Well, let me tell you what I tell people who say it's not their vote that, mat- that their vote doesn't matter. It's not just your vote. It's your influence. It's your stand that you take. It's your testimony for what is right. That's all equally important. A pastor that I was acquainted with when we were pastoring in Wichita, I'm sure some of you have heard him, he pastored a very large church in Wichita at that time. He's now retired. His name is Joe Wright. Joe Wright was asked to open the new session of the Kansas House back in 1996. And everyone was expecting the usual generalities in Pastor Wright's prayer but this is what, he, what they heard instead, and I'm quoting. He prayed, Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness and seek your direction and guidance. We know your word says, woe to those who call evil good, but that's exactly what we've done. We've lost our spiritual equilibrium and inverted our values, and we confess that. We've ridiculed the absolute truth of your word and called it pluralism. We've worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We've endorsed perversion and called it alternative lifestyles. We've exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We've neglected the needy and called it self-preservation. We've rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We've killed our unborn and called it choice. 
We've shot abortionists and called it justifiable killing. We've neglected to discipline our children and we call it building self-esteem. We've abused power and call it political savvy. We've coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it ambition. We've polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We've ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O God, and know our hearts today. Try us and see if there be some wicked way in us and cleanse us from every sin and set us free. And then he concluded his prayer with these words. Guide and bless these men and women who have been sent here by the people of the state of Kansas and who have been ordained to, by you to govern this great state. Grant them your wisdom to rule, and may their decisions direct us to the center of your will. And he said, I ask it in the name of the Son, the living Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now let me talk to you about the response to that prayer that Pastor Wright prayed in our Kansas house. It was an immediate response. A number of the legislators walked out during the prayer in protest. In six short weeks, Pastor Wright's church in Wichita logged more than 5,000 phone calls about that prayer with only 47 of those who called responding negatively. They supported what he said. In fact, radio personality, who's alive at that time, Paul Harvey, aired that prayer on his Rest of the Story program, and it received the largest audience response of any other program that Paul Harvey had ever put on the air. Friends, this identification principle that I'm talking about, it applies to the church a year doesn't go by, it seems, without some big-name preacher falling by the wayside in the moral sense. And as a pastor, you know what? I'm asked about those situations often, and my te the temptation is to answer in a way that puts me, myself, above that possibility in my own life, but not so. You see, friends, I am a man, and but by the grace of God, there go I. So not only do we need a national confession, we also need a personal confession. Can I just say that it's much easier to point out sin in somebody else's life rather than your own? Hello? It's the, the beam in your own eye keeps you from seeing clearly the speck in someone else's eye. So let me close. How about that, Tim? I'm just one minute late. It's 11.46. Okay. Tim and I have this running joke about me always finishing at a quarter till. If I wouldn't have got on a rabbit trail, I would have done it. But Here's how I want to close. I want you this morning, and this isn't for me. This is, this is for you, and it's between you and God. Just raise your hand if you have something big to pray about. I thought so. 
Raise your hand if you need God to move in a big way regarding that whatever it is that you want to pray about. Whatever that need, that's your miracle need. That is your miracle need. And if you're in need of a miracle in your life this morning, yeah, I'm going to get very specific. I want you to come forward. Right now, every one of you who raised your hand with that big need, I want you to just, I want you to come forward and I want you to stand up here facing me. And myself, along with some others in this congregation who believe in the power of prayer, we're going to anoint you and we're going to pray. Man, this is great. This is family saying, I need help. This is family saying, I need someone to share my burden. This is family saying, I have a need. And I have a big God who is able. He's able. Now, here's the way we're going to do it. It's going to be a little different than maybe what you're accustomed to. But for the sake of your privacy... I'm going to ask each of you up here not to tell me, at at this time anyway, not to tell me or anyone else what your need is unless you just absolutely feel the need to do so. The reason I brought you up here, friends, is because Jesus said to the crowds that were following him in Matthew chapter 19, verse number 26, he said these words. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Do you believe that this morning? Amen. We're just going to go down. Somebody want to join me? If you're standing in the line and you believe in the power of prayer, just join me. We're going to anoint each person here this morning. And then we're going to pray corporately for each person. We're not going to pray individually unless you just feel so led to do so. In Jesus' name.